0: Welcome to Oncopharm. I'm your host, John Bazar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice here, the supporting sponsor of Oncopharm, the Bill County College of Pharmacy. It is Thursday, March 5th. Uh, this is the last uh, live, I guess, so to speak, podcast uh, prior to HOPA. Um, so the Hematology Oncology Pharmacy Association meeting, uh, annual meeting is next Uh, next week. So at this time next week, on the Thursday afternoon, the pod usually drops. Uh, I will be out of town. There will be a pod next Thursday. It's something I will pre-record. It'll be a little bit of a historical perspective on drug pricing. Uh, So look forward to that. Uh, so we have a whole lot of stuff to talk about. A whole lot's gone on in the last week or so uh, in the Onco Farm, uh literature uh, with drug approvals and, and some interesting publications. So I've got a lot to cover. I'm going to try to get it done in 20 minutes, but I bet I failed by 10 minutes. Uh, I do want to <clears throat> point out, for those of you uh, going to HOPA in Tampa, Florida, uh, assuming that we're all allowed to still travel, uh, I want to uh, let you know to, you know, Introduce yourself if you see me. As I said last year, I'll be the, uh, be the guy uh, in khakis uh, with a beard and a blue shirt, so you can find me uh, easily. <clears throat> uh, introduce yourself again. Tell me what you like about the pod, what you'd like to hear more of, that sort of stuff. Uh, for those of you going, there is a, another Oncology Pharmacy podcast out there now. Uh, so If you search in the Apple uh, or iTunes or the Apple podcast, search HOPA now, H-O-P-A, NOW HoPA now and you will hear there's about a 10 minute podcast, kind of a preview of HoPA, of some stuff to look forward to as well as um kind of what to expect food, drink, nightlife uh, for uh, your evenings after the conference in Tampa. Uh, Ryan Bookout, a former president of HoPA, uh, is basically a walking uh, Yelp uh, for Tampa, Florida. So he, he gives a lot of great recommendations for dining and drinks and that sort of stuff. So so check that out uh, on the way to HoPA. But without further delay, Let's get into the deets. So on March 2nd, uh, Isituximab was FDA approved for multiple myeloma. is a brand name. It looks like it's going to be Sarclisa. Sarclisa. Uh, Isituximab. Uh, F- Fun one to say, Isituximab, uh, FDA approved with pomalidomide and dexamethasone in the third line setting for multiple myeloma for patients who have already had lenalidomide and a proteasome inhibitor. And this is based on the Icaria MM study, which had 307 patients, that looked at Isatuximab, POM, and DEX versus POM-DEX. Very similar design to the first study that got daratumumab approved. Uh, Isatuximab is a CD38 monoclonal antibody similar to daratumumab. Uh, the efficacy marker, the primary endpoint that got approved was, med- was progression-free survival, median progression-free survival with Isatuximab, 11.5 months versus 6.5 months, almost a doubling of median PFS. It's a hazard ratio of 0.596 confidence interval of 0.44 to 0.81, statistically significant. Uh, It's been said, many people are saying that Isatuximab will be priced lower than DareTumab. and hopefully this uh, would work and that DareTumab would respond by dropping their price, and maybe there's a bidding war to get to the lowest price for who would have the market for CD38 monoclonal antibodies. I'll do a brief overview of the comparison. For these and there don't seem to be a whole lot of differences when you look at these drugs uh, side to side they both target cd38 um, when you just look at the package insert Uh, obviously daratumab has been around longer people are more familiar with it and because it's been around longer it does have more approvals including in some upfront indications so the dosing of daratumab is 16 mix per kg weekly uh, for the first eight weeks for many indications. For some, it's uh, weekly for six weeks or for nine weeks. Depends on uh, which indication, approval, which uh, line of therapy and other drugs you're giving. Uh, but it's weekly for, <clears throat> you know, a month or two, uh, a month and a half to two months, and then every two weeks for 16 weeks, and then every four weeks thereafter. So the dosing schedule changes as you go on with Daratumab. This is different than it's a Tuximab. It's 10 mg per kilogram every week for a month, and then every two weeks thereafter. So there's only one dosage change where, with Daratumab. There's every week, every two weeks, every four weeks. tuxmab every week for four weeks then every two weeks. So a little bit simpler dosing. Uh, obviously, a is approved in the third-line setting with POMDEX. Dara has that same approval, but also has approvals as a single agent in the fourth-line setting, as some approvals in the first-line, second-line, in addition to the third-line setting. So a whole lot more um, uh, approved uses uh, of der 2 uh, But again, some of that is going to be uh, an artifact of DER2MAB being on the market earlier. As far as pre-medications, uh, Dara requires a corticosteroid, an antipyretic, and antihistamine up front. Uh, Isatuximab requires dex, <clears throat> acetaminophen, an H2 receptor antagonist, and diphenhydramine. Uh, one notable difference is there is a post-infusion dose of corticosteroids required for Daritumab. Uh That's not the case for Isatuximab. And this appears to be the big difference between these drugs. Is Daritumab appears to have a greater risk of hypersensitive reactions... In the very first DARA studies, we saw infusion reactions up to 50% of patients, including 4% in grade 3. Uh, with isatuxmab it's 39% infusion reactions, 1.3% in grade 3 or 4. So it seems to be a little bit lower rate of infusion reactions with isatuxmab and less severe. However, that may not really be the case. If you look at some of the subsequent DARA data in later approvals, uh, you see the, the rate of infusion reactions go down. When daratumab first came out, everybody was really worried about these severe infusion reactions. Some people added Montelukast up front to everybody uh, in addition to the required uh, pre-meds. And now that people have a handle on daratumab, we feel better about managing those infusion reactions, which is a very similar story to when rituximab first came out. Uh, of course, they both have uh, the uh, the need to blood type patients before they start a CD30 antibody because the CD30 antibody stay in the system, can affect blood typing if someone needs a blood transfusion. So make sure you know the blood bank knows this patient's on Dara or Isituximab. <coughs> Pardon me. And they both could have fear with assessment of uh, S-PEP, so electron, or um, serum protein electrophoresis uh, assay. So is one better than the other? You know, maybe there are fewer infusion reaction with isotuximab, Uh, is isotuximab really gonna be cheaper? Um, You know, does either of these have uh, activity uh, if somebody uh, develops uh, progression after being exposed to a CD thirty eight monoclonal antibody. In other words, is one uh, going to have activity after progression? So will Issa work after Dara? Will Dara work after Issa? Again, we don't know that. Um, you know, who knows? Or maybe you know, doesn't matter. You could continue either one all along. Again, a lot of unanswered questions uh, to know. But we do have another CD thirty eight monoclonal antibody. It's a fun one to say, Issa Uh Now, if we back up about a week from this approval on March second. On February 25th, neratinib, which had previously been approved a couple years ago for extended adjuvant treatment in HER2-amplified breast cancer, was approved in the metastatic setting in conjunction with capecitabine uh, for metastatic breast cancer after two or more lines of HER2-directed therapy. Uh, This is based on the NALA study. And if you're wondering where you've heard NALA before, uh, it's from The Lion King. It's Simba's love interest in The Lion King. I don't know why they named this study uh, after her uh, by the way, this is the same approval for neratinib as uh, trastuzumab deruxtecan uh, several months ago. Third line setting after two prior HER2-directed therapies, metastatic breast cancer. Um, you know, I could go into, you know, the differences here. The neratinib plus capecitabine has a different dose of capecitabine than lapatinib capecitabine. That's the, n- the neratinib study is, is neratinib cape versus lapatinib cape. Um, you know, lapatinib was a promising drug um, as... Uh, You know, as maybe people thought, neratinib uh, may be because it inhibits EGFR1 uh, as well as EGFR2, aka HER2. Uh, But you know, some some recent reports in the last year have shown uh, in. in laboratory studies that Lepatinib may actually turn into a partial agonist uh, after continual exposure to HER2, which may explain why it's not used a whole lot. So ask yourself, when was the last time you saw lapatinib and Capcitabine for metastatic breast cancer? Uh, And once you have that answer, for me, not very often, not, I can't remember the last time, probably tells you when you would see Neuratinib and Capcitabine going forward. And yes, now is the time to insert your diarrhea joke about Neuratinib and Capcitabine being used together. Okay, next thing to talk about. Right after recording last week's pod, uh, the of Medicine uh, was released, as it happens on Wednesday nights, uh, and there was the publication of Keynote 522, which was Pembrolizumab for early triple-negative breast cancer. Um, so this was neoadjuvant treatment of Pembrolizumab in triple-negative breast cancer, and... Um, and there's a, there's a little bit to go into here. I think this will be an impactful study. People might start using this right away. So I do want to go into this in, in a little bit more depth. So these were patients, uh, I believe, with stage two and three of breast cancer. Uh, and I'm going to be referring back to Impassion 130 quite a bit, which was a New England Journal publication from from late 2018 that looked at a plus Nab-Paclitaxel in the metastatic setting. Uh, again, in triple negative breast cancer, which is, we know, is, is the most aggressive or a very aggressive form of breast cancer. Um, so that was atizolizumab, so immunotherapy, plus nab a drug that we don't use a ton. It's not a go-to drug for everyone with breast cancer and metastatic breast cancer. One of the nice things about Keynote 522 is this was pembrolizumab plus paclitaxel followed by AC. Now, they did, this is a neoadjuvant study, so their primary response, or the primary endpoint, is pathologic complete response. This is a commonly used surrogate marker in neoadjuvant breast cancer studies. Of course, we would wanna see overall survival data that would take three to five years after surgery to really see is there an overall survival benefit Of your approach. But uh, the FDA has published uh, their analysis of studies looking at pathologic complete response rate, and it does correlate very well with progression-free survival, especially in the triple negative subtype of breast cancer, which is why going forward, pathologic complete response rate is the primary endpoint in many of these studies. Uh, I I think this was the first... uh, maybe even the first approval for pertuzumab was pathologic complete response rate was what got it on the market. Or one of the early studies and approvals for, for pertuzumab in conjunction with trastuzumab was a pathologic complete response rate endpoint. So the, uh, <clears throat> the design of this study, so patients either got PEMBRO or placebo, and it was PEMBRO plus uh, weekly paclitaxel uh, for 12 weeks, Uh, or placebo plus weekly paclitaxel. Then after that, they went on to standard AC uh, either. So anthracycline plus cyclophosphamide. It could have been doxorubicin or epirubicin. uh, For example, if you're in the UK, maybe you got epirubicin. Uh, And then surgery. And then following surgery, you were randomized to either pembrolizumab uh, for another uh, nine cycles or placebo. Um, So it was a neoadjuvant, uh, pembro plus chemo or just chemo followed by adjuvant Pembro versus placebo. Uh, Now, the differences in pathologic complete response rate were 64.8% in the Pembro group compared to 51.2%, so an absolute improvement of 13%, which is pretty notable. Uh, A little too early to really make firm uh, analysis of progression-free survival and overall survival. So this certainly adds um, to the growing body of evidence that immunotherapy has activity in triple-negative breast cancer. There uh, was a prior study, the iSpy2, which looked at uh, basically the same thing, Pembro plus Paclitaxel in the neoadjuvant study, neoadjuvant setting, small phase two study, but showed very impressive pathologic complete response rates. Again, in the order of 60%, similar to what we had here. Uh, They had lower uh, rates of PCR in the placebo group, but they didn't get anthracycline there. Uh, So this was a better comparison. Again, if we think back to Impassion 130, we don't use nab paclitaxel by itself um, in metastatic breast cancer. So in the new adjuvant setting, PEMBRO plus basically standard chemo—taxane, anthracycline, cyclophosphamide—so so standard chemo um, plus uh, plus this. One of the takeaways they try to make in this paper is that unlike in PASSION 130, which only showed benefit of immunotherapy in the pdl one positive group, this showed improvement uh, in the entire cohort of patients. However, this entire cohort of patients. In Keynote 522, is 83, 84% PDL1 positive? Almost all of these patients, uh, yeah, it's, it's 83% in the Pembroke group, 83.7% PDL1 positive. In the Impassion 130, only 40% of patients were PDL1 positive. Uh, and the entire population in that study didn't benefit from a tissue Lab, it was only the PDL1 positive group. Here, the entire population benefits, but four out of five patients in this population are PDL1 positive. And if you look at the subgroup analysis, the pd one negative folks uh, appeared numerically to even have a better improvement in pathologic complete response rate. However, you're only talking 90 patients. It's a very wide confidence interval that does cross uh, that does cross zero, so you can't say that for sure that it has activity. Again, it's an exploratory analysis, post hoc hypothesis generating. I think it's a little premature to say that. That, uh, that immunotherapy is active in all triple negative, but it is certainly uh, growing evidence that is 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 helpful uh, in patients who are, um, uh, PDL one positive. Um, I need to I need to back up and correct something. Uh, in the neoadjuvant setting, it was pembro, not just plus paclitaxel, but plus carboplatin as well. So uh, really standard treatment um, for patients with uh, with triple negative breast cancer. So since I messed it up before, I'll say it again: pembro plus paclitaxel and carboplatin that was kind of phase one of neoadjuvant uh, or or uh, or just paclitaxel carbo followed by AC then surgery then adjuvant pembro or placebo and the carboplatin was given either at AUC 5 every three weeks or AUC 1.5 weekly and most people actually got the carboplatin AUC dosed uh, weekly in the study uh, compared to the every three week so that's pembro for for early uh, breast cancer. So, uh, I would not be surprised if you're an oncology pharmacist if you saw uh, women with triple negative breast cancer uh, in the neoadjuvant setting starting to get Pembro with chemo, uh, starting based off of this study uh, very soon. All right, the next thing to talk about is uh, the long term, the, the five year uh, overall survival analysis of new uh, EPOC, uh, EPOC. Uh, this was published in, uh, in Lancet. Uh, or Lancet, Oncol- Lancet Oncology, uh, just, uh, just this week. Uh, so New Epoch was looking at chemo in the form of Folfox, plus or minus cetuximab for patients with uh, early metastatic colon cancer that had resectable liver metastases. Uh, now, we, this study was started back in 2007, um, and at the time when this study was started, uh, we did not know yet with cetuximab common theme here on Farm podcast is drugs are approved and we don't know everything we need to know about them. Uh, <clears throat> when this study was started, we did not know that not all patients uh, benefited from cetuximab, only those that had uh, wild type KRAS. And since then, we've learned there's NRAS we should look at and BRAF also plays a difference in whether or not cetuximab will work in your cancer. And so they had to do a protocol amendment early on. To, to exclude those patients that were um, had mutated KRAS, and since they went back and looked at all the data they had, all the tissue samples they had, to make sure that patients were wild type for for all testable forms of this, uh, this study was stopped early uh, because the fulfox plus cetuximab folks uh, actually did poor. And we have the the overall survival. Let me just uh, give you the top line takeaway here. So the median progression free survival was 22 months. Um, with chemo alone compared to 15 months with chemo plus detuximab. So PFS was worse with chemo plus detuximab. And again, they weeded out the patients who had mutated uh, RAS uh, mutations. Median overall survival, 81 months, which is five plus years, right? That's that's almost seven years. Uh, Median overall survival, 81 months in the chemo, which is a great median overall survival, by the way. Um, median over, maybe the highest you've ever seen in this, uh, in this setting, median overall survival, 81 months chemo plus or chemo alone compared to 55 months with chemo plus cetuximab. So adding the target therapy was worse um, compared to just doing chemo alone. And this prompted things like the NCCN guidelines to remove uh, the recommendation to do chemo plus, say an EGFR agent, uh, or even chemo plus Bev is, is now not in the guidelines, just chemo alone because, uh, partially of this finding, they, they, they spent a lot of time describing this, uh, in this, uh, they their back in, their, sorry, uh, in their discussion. So this leads to, you know, you, you can dig into what type of surgery and who got surgery and, uh, and this sort of stuff, um. But one of the questions that that comes up here is what is what is going on here? Because the PFS benefit or the PFS difference was not statistically significant and numerically it was small. It did favor chemo alone, but that overall survival difference is huge. In fact, if you look if you look at the PFS curves as I flip through this, the PFS curves don't separate a whole lot. They're almost interchangeable. They're just a small benefit for the chemo group. It looks like, uh, if anything, but the overall survival curves continue to uh, expand and separate from each other over time. So one of the theories here that the authors describe is that the use of cetuximab in this setting, uh, this sort of newly metastatic uh, colon cancer, um, that cetuximab somehow leads to a more aggressive type of colon cancer uh, upon relapse, uh, and they say this because the patients progress much faster when they relapsed in the cetuximab group. When patients relapsed in the cetuximab group, they're more likely to have multiple sites of relapse versus just versus just one re- relapse. And uh, again, at the time, we did not know as much about colon cancer as we do now. For example, we know about the differences between left-sided and right-sided colon cancer. We know about uh, microsatellite instability, uh, mismatch repair deficiency, and how uh, that can, uh, for example, there was just a publication this week in JCO Precision Oncology that sporadic uh, DNA mismatch repair uh, uh, is inferior uh, when cetuximab is given in in the metastatic setting. Uh, So there's something different about giving cetuximab plus chemo. In the, in, the, in the way metastatic setting. When I say way metastatic, I mean beyond just liver mets uh, versus what we saw with new epoch. And so this is data that it's not necessarily new. We've known this for a while, but since it was just published, I wanted you all to be aware of that, especially if you work with a lot of colon cancer patients. Now let's stay in the realm of GI malignancies and let's talk about pancreatic cancer. This was an interesting study. And this, if you work uh, in a precision oncology clinic or you're involved in molecular tumor boards or uh, you're thinking of starting a process like that, your your institution is considering that. And this is a publication uh, that I think is worth digging into a little bit more. I'm not going to go into this in a lot of detail. I've already gone past the 20-minute mark for, for part of the reason why. But this was published in uh, in Lancet Oncology this week. It's Overall Survival in Patients with Pancreatic Cancer Receiving matched Therapy Following Molecular Profiling, A Retrospective Analysis of the You-Know-Your-Tumor Registry. Um, it's a little bit misleading title. Uh, it's a retrospective observational cohort study you, you can't say that one drug is better than the other or one not one drug but one treatment approach is better than the other um, because a company partially paid for the study as well as a nonprofit group uh, that looked at basically getting referrals to do um, genomic sequencing on these pancreatic cancer tumors and then matching them uh, with physicians back home into target therapy and they show a pretty what they see when they look back at this is the patients who got molecular profiling done. And in 97% of cases, it was precision uh, or it was foundation medicine who did this uh, this process, uh, which is probably one of the most commonly used uh, tumor genomic profile uh, or platforms out there, is that patients who had this done and had an actionable mutation, they, they did a lot better as far as overall survival compared to those who either did not have uh, an actual mutation or had an actual, an actual mutation but did not get targeted therapy or, or matched therapy. Uh, and the, the survival curves separate quite a bit, very impressively. However, very flawed study. You can't take a whole lot of stuff from an, a retrospective observational cohort study. Um, one of, the, I think, the key things to think about, there is a lot of, uh, I think, HYPE hype is a fair term to say with, uh, with precision medicine. Uh, and this is uh, one of the limitations, and this is kind of all I'm going to get into this study is uh, over 1,800, 1,856 patients were referred to this Know Your Tumor Registry. Uh, of that, about 1,600 consented to maybe be in this. Uh, of that uh, 1,500 or so patients who consented, uh, then the number drops by 370 or so to 1,200 or so that had tissue available for profiling. That drops to 1,000 patients who actually got their report and of those 1,000 or so who got the report, 282 had an actionable finding where they could match therapy. Um, and then uh, the total finding or the final cohort here is only 677 patients. And of those 677, only 189 had actionable molecular findings. So you, they started with 1,800, and they end up with only 10% of patients uh, possible who had an actionable molecular finding. So a whole lot of work and cost. Uh, to find fewer than 200 patients who you could match on therapy. And those who, you know, you could match on therapy, if you go back and look at it retrospectively, they did do better uh, than other folks. Uh, So I think this is a worthwhile publication to go grab uh, if... uh, if you're involved in molecular tumor boards, or if you have a lot of pancreatic cancer patients who are getting this done, uh, you can go back and see, uh, you know, what treatments were matched for some of these patients, and you can see how they did. It's, it's uh, you can look at this as as a very impressive case series of a whole lot of patients who got m- matched and targeted th- treatment uh, based on uh, uh, molecular profiling of their tumor. Okay. Finally, the last thing that I have to talk about today, uh, something that, that was making their rounds on, on Twitter, it's a hairy cell leukemia publication, probably the first time we talk hairy cell leukemia uh, on, this, on this pod. So this was published uh, in JCO, it's a randomized phase two study of first-line cladribine with concurrent or delayed rituximab in patients with hairy cell leukemia. Uh, this is uh, the a type of study we're seeing a lot of in um, hematologic malignancies, which Uh, treatment is based off of minimum residual disease so this is looking at uh, cladribine so just brief primer on hairy cell leukemia you can generally do cladribine or pentostatin they're both period analogs and you do cladribine one time it's like one week wham bam thank you ma'am and you're done or pentostatin every two weeks for um i think it's 12 cycles or something like that so you can be one and done uh, and there can be quite a bit of myelosuppression that comes with that one and done uh, dosing with cladribine, or you can dose every two weeks for a couple months with pentostatin, um, and and they both tend to have you know the same long term, the same complete response rates uh, with hairy cell leukemia. And you can have it's a slow growing disease, so you can have light relapses with hairy cell leukemia. Uh, so this was a, a study from uh, where was this from? Well, that's not important. Uh, But they had 68 patients uh, who received a purine analog, uh, and they were randomized one-to-one. So we're talking only 30 patients or so in this arm. They either got cladribine, and then they got concurrent rituximab. Uh, They got standard dose rituximab. uh, Or they waited until six months after completing cladribine, and if they had MRD, then they got rituximab. So it was essentially doing rituximab up front or later once they developed MRD positivity. Uh, and they find you know a huge difference in an uh, in MRD negativity. Uh, so uh, you know, 97% uh, in the cladribine plus rituximab group achieved MRD negativity. Let me say let me say that over again. So 97% with cladribine plus rituximab had an MRD negative complete response, uh, compared to just 32% uh, with cladribine. Again, small numbers, big differences. Um, you know, going forward, it's not it's not uh, verified or, or known that MRD negativity is the required endpoint we should shoot for in hairy cell leukemia. Uh, several of the patients who are MRD uh, positive did not necessarily have have relapse. So just because you're MRD positive with hairy cell doesn't mean that you would have relapse. Uh, so, um, you know, the authors do a, a really nice job, I think, in their discussion. So in their discussion, uh, you know, one of the last, second to last sentence, because of the effectiveness of delayed rituximab, it will take much longer to determine a difference in clinical relapse between randomly assigned groups. And the difference between delayed and historical patients um, may become obvious before that time. So, you know, this was the NIH that did this, of course, the NIH. Um, So a small, small study looking at um, minimum residual disease. Um, Again, a little unclear, at least from, from my reading of this, whether or not that is absolutely what we should shoot for with hairy cell leukemia. Again, this depends on the age uh, and their overall health uh, going into this. Um, one interesting thing that, uh, that I think is actually most interesting from this study is we think of rituximab as being a very safe drug, and there's one notable difference in toxicity uh, in this study, and that had to do with thrombocytopenia. Uh, so the, uh, the rates of thrombocytopenia are 68% in the cladribine plus rituximab groups versus 9% when they just got cladribine up front. Now, we don't think of rituximab as causing thrombocytopenia, but there is this odd odd manifestation of rituximab called uh, uh, transient rapid uh, thrombocytopenia, uh, and it tends to be seen in in things like uh, splenic marginal zone lymphoma, and these sort of things, they have a, a, a rapid transient decrease in platelets that, that recovers very very quickly. It's not a direct myelosuppressive effect, and it's not really clear what that is, but we appeared to see quite a bit of that when cladribine was used upfront with rituximab. So uh, if somebody is getting on board with doing uh, rituximab plus cladribine concurrently for all your hairy cell leukemia patients, I would think twice about that if you had somebody, say, with recent stenting on dual antiplatelet therapy, for example, because of that, that thrombocytopenia that happens. So that's what I have for OncoFarm. Farm. A lot of stuff going on. Um, again, um, uh, next week's pod is going to be uh, pre-recorded, but it will drop on Thursday. So if you're at Hopa, you can use it walking between, uh, you know, from your uh, from your room uh, to the session, or if you you know want to break from the pod uh, while you're at Hopa, you could listen to it. Uh, if you're like me, um, you know, and you're you're uh, connecting uh, for your your home, flight back home in Atlanta as you go from like Terminal A to terminal T, which is always what happens when I connect through there. Uh, so thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at Uh You can follow me uh, on Instagram at uh, at Uh You can find uh, the pod handle on Twitter as well. Uh, and until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank mm-hmm.